0: I want to um, continue on in the, uh, you start in Genesis 1, it's an easy place to get to tonight, and um, we're going to continue on, we're going to do a study of Genesis as I continue on through the, you know, pastor asked me to speak, uh, last time of course I did, thankfully I think a lot of people were out, so I tested only the patience of a few of you here, and uh, we were setting the basis for it. And a lot of it has to do with the main argument before you enter the book of Genesis. And as you do a lot of study of it's really a defense of where we start in origins, in the beginnings. It has a lot of defense of the word of God. And in the sense of, you know, explaining to people that evolution is dumb. Okay. It doesn't work. It's not a plausible. It's not a theory, by the way. Does anybody know what evolution is? It's a hypothesis. Good, good. So people have been trained right. I hear. I try to. By the way, correct people when they say that because it does. Uh, it's you know, it's, it's it's people choosing to look through a lens that they choose to because of their rebellion to an Almighty Creator, and um, you know that's the reason why you'll never. You know, people want the news media uh, to be objective. They're never going to be, you know why? Because they look through things a certain way. They see life in a certain way, and so you're you're going to really um, be sad to think CNN is ever going to start reporting news in a fair way. And so, fair and balanced won't won't will not happen. But tonight, as we um, get into Genesis chapter one, I do want to um, start out with just starting with the first verse, I know we got into it a little bit last time, and um, how about this, okay, all right, so, and as we get started, I just want to challenge you with something, you know, as you, as you listen to the, and we're going to try to get through two chapters, I never do well with this, even in Sunday school, um, (laughs) So my goal is to hit two chapters. I'm I'm going on the fact that we did cover a little bit early on, so you'll see me turn the note pages pretty quick here as we go. Um, But, you know, really the first two chapters, I want you to think about a choice. A choice. I I, I want you to think about what God's ideal is as we talk about chapters 1 and 2. I was encouraged as I went through this because it is about what God chose. It is about God's ideal. You know, I, I, I really like a a speech by Ronald Reagan. Um, it's called A Time for Choosing. I've played it here for some of you. Um, and I, I wish I could just read the whole thing to you because I'll get teary-eyed and stuff like that. But um, this was during the former administration. I would kind of go back to the speech and I thought, Well, I wish we had someone talk like that today. But, you know, he talked about A Time for Choosing. And he talked about a choice in his message, and it was really this was a, a message given. It was for Barry Goldwater when he was running for president. This is where Ronald Reagan kind of earned his fame because he went to the convention and kind of stole the hearts of the people at that time. He didn't—I uh, don't know if he intended to—but he did because his message was good. Listen to this part of—I just cut out a piece of this—but he says, appeasement uh, or courage, the specter of the specter our well-meaning liberal friends refuse to face." is that their policy of accommodation is appeasement. And appeasement does not give you a choice between peace and war, only between fight and surrender. We are told that the problem is too complex for a simple answer. They are wrong. There is is no easy answer, but there is a simple answer. We must have the courage to do what we know is morally right. And this policy of accommodation asks us to accept the greatest impossible immorality. We are being to asked to buy our safety from the threat of the bomb by selling into permanent slavery our fellow human beings enslaved behind the Iron Curtain to tell them to give up their hope of freedom because we are ready to make a deal with their slave masters. Alexander Hamilton warned us that a nation which can prefer disgrace to danger is prepared for a master and deserves one. Admittedly, there is a risk in any course we follow. Choosing the high road cannot eliminate that risk. Already, some of the architects of accommodation have hinted what their decision will be if their plans fail and we are faced with that final ultimatum. The English commentator Tynan has put it this way, he would rather live on his knees than die on his feet. Some of our own have said better red than dead. If we are to believe that nothing is is worth the dying, when did this begin? Should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery rather than, uh, rather than dare the wilderness? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have refused to fire the shot heard round the world? Are we to believe that the martyr, all the martyrs of history died in vain? You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We can preserve for our children this last, this, the last best hope of man on earth. Or we can sentence them to take the first step into a thousand years of darkness. If we fail, let our children and our children's children say of us, uh, say of us, we justified our brief moment here. We did all that could be done. And he goes on to talk about, you know, the time for choosing. You know, I think when you think about the the Bible and its determination of what it meant to choose, I, I kind of I looked up some things about choosing. Um, I, I think about they are very definitive statements when you look at that, that verb, choose. Um, Joshua 2014. Can anybody quote the phrase? Whom you'll serve. You Exodus um, 17, 9. Uh, Moses told Joshua, choose out men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. That's powerful. You know, we're going to choose things. Uh, you know, he talks about that... Uh, Numbers 16 7. Uh, and it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. And this is when he's challenging the, the, son, uh, the sons of Levi there, you sons of Levi. Um, he goes on in, in, in different different places all throughout the Old Testament. There's a there's a whole bunch of references of choosing just like that. When the Bible speaks of a choice, it's interesting because it's more about the value of something than it is the actual decision between two points. Um, I, I was pulled up some of these, and, you know, when it says choice, it uses it in the context of the choice of our sepulchres in Genesis 23.6. Uh, 49.11, the choice vine. In Deuteronomy 12.11, the choice vows. Uh, 1 Samuel 9, two. there was a man who was a choice young man. Do you know who that was? It was Saul. He was a choice young man and a goodly. Uh, It goes on, choice men of Israel, a choice city, a choice fir trees. You know, when we choose something, there's a value put on it, isn't it? There's a true lasting value. When you go to the menu, you don't look up there and go, let me pick the absolute worst thing that I can take, you know. Uh, You look at it, nobody goes up there to, McDonald's or Hardee's for a salad? I would hope, right? We're looking for something that tastes really good and is bad for us, right? We're we're going to choose what we believe is the best tasting thing. We're going to choose. Nobody goes out to seek for a wife and says, "Let me find the ugliest one I can find," right? That that doesn't happen. Um, if you if you are doing that, please let me know. I'd just be curious. I need to find out what's going on. You know, when we think about choices. God made a choice. And when you look in the first two chapters of Genesis, what a powerful statement about God's ideal and what he wanted and what he wants. And by the way, he's going to accomplish what he wants. And we know that. He has a design and he has a plan. And man cannot thwart that. The devil cannot thwart that. And we must, as we look at this with eyes of discernment, understand what God's ideal was and continues to be and will be. Because as everything was started, so shall it end. And it'll for and for us humanity and this earth as it is. And we need to be very prepared for that. And is and and you know, really the origins of of you know as we look here at this in the scriptures, it'll help us better understand. Uh, really at the end as far as revelation and where things go from here, right? And so let's look at Genesis chapter 1 in verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form, and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Of course, the world did not create itself. God created. God put this here. And when God chose to do it, he did it out of nothing. We know that we talked a little bit about chance. I remember we had uh, Brennan flipping a coin, and we talked about what chance really means. Uh, There is, you know, when Brennan flips that coin, if you remember, some of you that were here, uh, we, we talked about did chance cause it to land on heads or tails? No. What caused it to land on heads or tails? resistance in the wind and his thumb flipping and, and all of that, uh, all of that played a part in in that. It, chance does not do anything. And so when, you know, this thing, as far as when we look at creation, uh, we're confident to know that God didn't just leave it up to chance. And, you know, when you leave things to chance, it really takes away the intimate, personal nature in which God does things. and you take God and you, you kind of neutralize him as uh, just a being uh, who had some things here and let it kind of you know, ferment in the biosphere. And all this came together and, and as an evolutionary uh, way of doing things, the way they want to show it. And um, you know, it, God created a just right universe. Of course, the Hebrew word was barum, coming from uh, the idea that it was created out of nothing. And so and we talked a little about this as we went on. Um, of course, we know that it says, in the beginning, God. And uh, he, he did create these things out of nothing. He's brought this in. He, we know that he was in the, in the beginning, before the beginning. And uh, many people who try to understand creation and this viewpoint, um, as we look at it biblically and what we trust here, they often start with a, trying to define who God is. Who is God? And we know who God is. We know that he's an uncreated being, that he is eternal and without beginning or end. Uh, We know from Psalms chapter 90 uh, that before the mountains were brought forth or ever the earth was formed, from everlasting to everlasting, that he is God. And we know that God has been, been here before the beginning, through the beginning, till the end of this earth and on. He is eternal. And so, in the beginning, of course, God also was in three persons. We'll see here uh, the plural nature of that is some statements that will be said. Of course, in the beginning, God had an eternal purpose. And we understand that that internal purpose was right from the very beginning. Uh, in First 1 Peter 1.20, it says that uh, he was indeed foreordained uh, before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you. Titus 1, 2 says, and, of course, talks about the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Um, we find references to, uh, of course, the mystery of the gospel, and uh, we know that you know, it's according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to Christ Jesus before time began in 2 Timothy 1, 9. We know Ephesians 1, 4 says that uh, he He chose us before the end, before the foundation of the world. Why? That we can be holy and without blame before him in love. And, of course, you know, we see here that in the beginnings as he created everything, and Job 38.7 makes a reference to the angels and their presence. So we, we know that all of these things were there. The state of the earth at the time is what? It's without form, it's void, and it's dark. And, of course, the darkness was on the face of the deep. And uh, this earth in its state, uh, it, it, was, it was built with age in mind, just like Adam would be, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the idea here is that there is, there is darkness, there is an earth here. God has created all these things, and it is without form and void. You couldn't live here um, in, in any way. It, is, it was completely um, desolate in that way. So what does he do? Well, he in verse 3, the first thing that he says is, Let there be light. Now, that's the first step to anything coming from chaos to organization. There has to be light. By the way, if we turn the lights in here, out, there'll be chaos. Uh, especially if we tear it up by run. There'll be complete chaos. You won't know where to go. You know, of course... Paul speaks about that light, and when he speaks of the gospel in Second Corinthians four, and uh, he talks about you know if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those you know those who are perishing. And and you know as we think about our um, you know the, the light of the gospel, there's a lot of things analogy wise we can use here. But the truth is that God brought light here; He spoke it in, and when we think about light. Light existed before what? before the what? what? What would we assume light comes from? The sun. And the moon reflects light, right? Stars shine light. And people stare in the night sky and find light all the time. But before, the, before, before those, that, that object was there for them for, for them to emit light, we see that God brought light here. Now, that is, a, that is very telling because what does it tell us about light? It's it's not natural, is it? It's supernatural. The fact that God can produce light, by the way, will we ever see that light again? Yeah, it'll happen again, right? Revelation 22, 5. There will not be a need for the sun will be a need for the moon as things were so they shall be see there will be a time when this supernatural light it, it begins with God by the way people worship the sun don't they and, and you know, as you look look at uh, cultures around the world and and then you know you look at the Egyptians they particularly worship the sun and you know as we look at this God was here before this, you know, he was in the, the light for this world. It says God saw the light in verse 4 that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night In the evening and the morning were the first day. So before we had the sun, before we had the moon, we had night, we had day. And we have God as the author of that light. Exodus ten twenty one. Somebody turn there real quick and tell me what was the nature of the darkness that God caused over the Egyptians. See if somebody can find it. What strikes you in Exodus ten twenty one? Because when God creates darkness, it's supernatural too. Can you tell me what that word is that stands out? You could feel it. By the way, you know, there, there are times when I, I loved it. We went to West Virginia one time and I laid in a cabin and uh, so I tell my wife, I said, I was just excited. I said, Look at this. Look at, wait, a she can't see this. I was like, The lights were out. And I'm sitting, I got my hand up here, and I'm going, This is dark. I can't even see my hand, you know. I mean, smacking myself in the face, you know. I didn't even see that coming. <laughs> and, um, you know, darkness, you know, boy, if I could have said darkness could be felt, it would have been that. But I'll, I'll tell you this when God sends darkness, it can be felt. And when God sends light, it can be felt. It's from God. And um, so God, of course, here he has created light. There is darkness that he called night. This was his purpose. This is what he chose. And this is what's going to be in the very first day. So we look at the second day. It says, and God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. I do not like saying the word firmament, but it's there a bunch of times. And But firmament, what is a firmament? Well, you, it can be said as an expanse or space, some type of space in between. And um, we know this to be kind of a... Uh, you know, if you read Morris and some of the folks within creationism, they'll talk about there is a water vapor somewhere up in the, uh, in fact, they, they use, uh, talk about in the stratosphere, above the stratosphere there, or troposphere, that was existing. And um, this would have created a global greenhouse and would have made it so that, of course, you had all the, the you know, the, the planet would have been similar in temperature. By the way, if you have a similar temperature, what will you lack? All right, no snow. What? Seasons. And what, what, what causes the, you know, when you think about rain and, and wind, and things like that. All that stuff is created by the temperature differentiations and as they move back and forth, the hot to the cold or whatever, and the cold to the hot. So as you think about that, you don't have the water rain cycle forming. There's no significant winds. And this place is one big, beautiful greenhouse, lush and tropical. And, um, of course, you know, as you think about that, this vapor blanket would also protect and keep out the ultraviolet radiation, the cosmic rays, all the destructive energies that are bombarding the planet. And so we see here there is a, there is a firmament, there's water there above, and there's water beneath. And, of course, as you think about the planet, we, uh, ha- having water above and having water beneath is great if you're a fish, uh, but for man, we're going to need a little bit little bit uh, better than that. So God, of course, in verse 9, it says that God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and to gather together the waters, called he seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were a third day. So we see here that the earth is, is, like I said, covered with water, and all of a sudden it begins to bring forth what? Dry land. And then what happens on the dry land? Growing grass. Can I ask you a question? What is needed for plants to grow well? You don't need some sunlight. You know, if, if, you're, um, if, if you look at this and you think about it, how can you have plants and vegetation growing before the sun and the moon? Um, people who teach a gap theory really miss this point, uh, because you say, "Well, the evolutionists wouldn't believe that anyway." Well, we have in the scriptures right here that we have got the the whole everything growing without a sun in the sky. So these these plants they they pop up on the scene here, and they're they're just fine because of course the Lord. Is bringing this all into being as he speaks it out, and um, you know, as we look at this, um, it just says, you know, it's so. It, this is what happens; it takes place. He just speaks it, and it comes out. And uh, these plants, of course, are not created as seeds; they're created with age. And there's plants growing according to what? According to what? what is it growing according to what is it what is it made after that's right it's been it's growing after its kind it's not going to develop into something else we don't have plants you know turning into other things that's great that would bother me i love collards in fact when i plant them i want to eat collards when it's done i don't want to go out there and find out they become radishes cuz i hate radishes But God saw, of course, after all of that, he put that together after its kind and saw that it was good. Then we move to the fourth day. And we says then, verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be for, for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and divide the night, the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and that it was good. So, of course, he creates the sun, moon, and stars. The stars are just tossed in for extra, by the way. They're free. They come with the planet. Um, you can keep those, and God didn't charge you a thing for those He made them uh, for you to admire what He has created, what He chose to create for you. He chose to put those the the sun and moon up there so you can know that um, when it's you know when it's noon when it's daytime for the seasons and the signs that you would have and so all of these things were were just put together for you in that way. When we come to day four, we find a place for the, for the light to reside, right? We find a place for it to live. If you ever get confused about your days of creation, day one is light, right? And then you have the light bearer on day four. The same thing when it happens with the, when we look at the, the expanse of the sky and the ocean, we're going to see that we're going to have the birds and we're going to have the sea life. When on, We're going to have that on day five. And then day six we are going to have the land, the vegetation, everything else. Well, then you're going to have the, the, the rest of you know, creation there. So as we look at this, keep that in mind as we go throughout this. So in the fifth day, we see that, the, of course, God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth which the waters brought uh, forth abundantly after their kind, and every wing fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let fowl multiply on the earth, and make Brother Hoyle fish sandwiches from McDonald's. So do like this. And the evening and morning were the fifth day. And so, of course, we, we have all of this, do we see any plants turning into fish or any of the animal life? No, we see God speaking these things into being. And it's all done according to what? It's done according to their kind. And so, you know, as we look here, of course, uh, they all, God begins to make all of these things, these great whales pull all these things together. Everything is, is being put in, in that way. And... Um, you know, as we see day five here completed um, with everything done according to its kind, then we come, everything is beginning to crescendo to this grand point. Uh, God is building all of that. If you remember, everything's being built with a purpose and in an order that one is built for the other. And so as we come to this point and, and we see here in verses 24 and 25, it says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind. Cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth after his kind, and it was so, and and God made the beasts of the earth after his kind, the calf their kind, and everything that creeped upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. So all those things are made, and um, and then in verse twenty, uh, he's made the land animals there, put all that in, and in verse twenty-six we see here that it takes a different tone, and it and it, and it does so because God had a choice. God chose to do all of that for verse 26. And God said, let us make man, there we see the reference to us in the Trinity there, in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And so there you see... This is to be unique, and in His image. This kind of destroys pantheism, right? We don't, we don't, you know, and people who want to worship things here on earth and 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 worship the animals and things there. Of course, you'll get more in trouble today for what killing an animal, if you, you know, over killing a human. But the choice was, everything was made for man. Everything was built and put in place that he might enjoy it, and. It, he, man is made, of course, in the image of God, and this is where we have the unbridgeable gap between human life and animal life when he speaks of in our image. In our image, of course, reflect, when we reflect on that, we realize that man alone has a natural countenance looking upward. We realize that man alone has such a variety of facial expressions, a sense of shame when he blushes, he speaks, and he has personality, morality, and spirituality. We are different than animals, even though we may tend to behave like them once in a while. So, you know, as you think about that, um, certainly people try to take us and, and fit us in with uh, the animals and treat them as equal, but they do not have knowledge, feelings, and a will. They're not able to make moral judgments or have a conscience and, of course, they are not made for communion with God in spirituality. That is a very special thing reserved for man. And so as we look at this in our image, we also realize that the image here, of course, has more to do with appearance, a likeness more with an abstract similarity. They're essentially the same thing, but that's, that's what we're talking about here. Of course, not that God has you know the, the physical presence of a man. Uh, of course when angels show up here, they show up in a they do manifest in, in a form that is familiar to man. Uh we do know that, you know, it, by the way, that was one of the easiest transitions, right? Because when Christ came and in, in the incarnation, it made sense. It's we're made in his image, and of course, he comes and is amongst us in that way. So, you know, after as you look at this, of course, what is the what is their um What are they to have? They're to have dominion over God's creation. And uh, in verses 27 through 31, uh, we see here it says, So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So we come we come to the end of that sixth day and we realize here that man has been created in God's image. By the way, when the Bible repeats something in in this sense, what is reputation what is reputation meant to be? It's stressing the point because as you look there, so God created man in his own image. He stre- the Lord is stressing the point. In this passage, and saying this is this is important for you to understand. A man, of course, was fully formed, put together in one day. And uh, you know, if you think about what it would have taken for him to quote unquote evolve, uh, they say there are forty stages, and I don't know how they come up with this, but forty stages of evolutionary uh, stages to get through to make the human eye. What the thirty nine others would they have been advantageous at all? I mean. You know, no, they wouldn't have. The the former 39, you know, who would want those other 39, you know, at any point of it, right? And so God made it perfect to begin with. He had a purpose for man. That was his choice. And the Bible says here in a summary fashion, we'll learn a little bit more about the details of this in chapter 2 as we go there in just a moment, but he created them how? Male and female. And uh, that's his choice. That's what he chose to do. That's a choice that he made. That's how he intended it to be. And he pointed out that he made them male and female. So as we, you know, as we look at this, you know, you think about male and female. Uh, to God, the differences between men and women, they're not accidents, are they? They were a specific choice. It is the ideal of God that there is a man and that there is a woman. That is very important for us to understand. It's one area that has been blurred by society on purpose. The devil's purpose is being accomplished in saying that there's not a difference between the two. You know, I read one commentator, and as I read this, I thought it was interesting. He said, it is vain to wonder if men or women are superior to the other. A man is absolutely superior. i got to finish the sentence. Hold on. A man is absolutely superior at being a man. A woman is absolutely superior to being a woman. But when a man tries to be a woman or a woman tries to be a man, You have something that is inferior. Very important for us to understand that God made a choice. God chose this ideal. And when he did, he said, A woman is best at being a woman, and a man is the best at being a man. Yet, when you look at the other side of that coin, where society tries to prove god wrong what is it every man ought to be a woman and every woman ought to be a man it's it's almost it's heralded as courageous it's heralded as brave it's heralded as as strong and as powerful and yet is the most inferior thing you can do and it breaks down society like you you know as you look at it that that is the continual breakdown of society you see men turned into wimps because they can't be a woman well I mean I can't be a woman well you know can you imagine y'all had all mental pictures just then so you know and and I know ladies you will not be um, you will not be the best at being a man by the way what did God do with them first he's made them the first thing God did for man was to, well, when he when he placed them in the garden, what did he do for them? What's that? He gave them dominion. But I always glossed over the fact that he did something else. Look there, see what it says. What did he do? Ah, he blessed them. He blessed them. You see, God gave us a blessing right out the the outset. And when God blessed him, this is what he, this was his ideal. This was his choice. This was his sign of approval that this was his blessing. And everything else from that point was for man to, to take that blessing and enjoy it. That was God's ideal. Yes, being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it and having dominion, all of it, you know, It to you it shall be for food. You know, and go on and, and, and partake of it and enjoy it. And this was the ideal, man and woman in the, in the garden here. Of course, As we look here in chapter 2, let's go there, and it's kind of, I know we've covered a lot of, a little bit, you know, things I I was able to run through toward the end of the last time we spoke, but in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and when he had rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made, uh, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Nathan, if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 4 for me. God sanctified the last day, the seventh day, where God rested. And of course, as we look at this, this of course is a gift to man for rest, replenishment, The Sabbath, of course, is a shadow of the rest available through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Nathan, if you'll read for me Hebrews 4, uh, verses uh, 9 through 11 for me. What is that rest in a picture of? It's a picture of rest in who? The Lord Jesus. For the believer, where do we find rest? Excuse me, what day do we find rest on? Sunday? Do we sell I mean do we celebrate a Christian Sabbath? There you go. Read read the verses again. You see, rest, what he's showing here, did God need to physically rest? No. But there was an end of the works for what he chose. Because for what he chose, he was satisfied with. And for what he was satisfied with, it was the ideal. There was no need for anything else. God would not, in the frame of time, go, you know what? I want to tweak and add a little here on the canvas of creation. When God stepped back, he said what? It's very good. I'm done. He didn't need that rest. Because what God wants, he supplies. He provided the ideal. He's put it there. And it's for us to recognize it. Now, when we think about what Jesus Christ has done for us at Calvary, it's done. It's provided for and it's a choice it's the ideal it's where we rest nothing else needs to be done take your rest every day you know as you look at this of course we can think about you say well you're conflating two different things we're talking about the day of rest and we're you know we know people don't work on you know your seven-day work week doesn't work I get that but it was a picture of something much larger it was a picture to understand that God had ceased his work and it was a picture of that for them and that you could enter into the rest of his work and that that would be important for man and God continued that with the children of Israel. We know that there was even penalties for them disobeying given the land rest and, and, and rest in their own life and every culture has paid when they break that picture, Right. Ten-day work wakes that come up, you know, and stuff, that never has worked. By the way, it can go the other way, too. Of course, we had, nowadays we're worried about people uh, trying to rest six days and working on the seventh, right? So don't, conversely, it's just as bad. But as we look at this in verses 4 through 7, the Bible says that, and it gives a history here of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. When they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And so as we look at this, you know, just just kind of a summary statement here, and um, as as we think about this, um, l- look at all the things that, that God has done, and, and in His, of course, the, you know, the heavens and the earth directly here made by God, and um, you know, as you look at this, we see uh, before any plant of the field it says was any, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth. Uh, we, we have all of that, we have all of that history. We don't wonder about what happened. What we know is God chose to put it here. And, you know, as we think about the earth, you know, you can look around at other planets. Isn't it interesting? When you look at other planets, what are people dying to do? They want to get there, don't they? Nuts. God made this, and we're like, man, we'd love to go to Mars where there's extreme temperatures where I could either freeze to death or burn up. Let's head there. We do that. I mean, there are people right now signed up to go to Mars. If they were to launch, and by the way, they should be on that ship. I I think everyone that wants to go should get in the ship and head there as fast as possible, okay? And take all the warning labels off the pill bottles and make it real easy to get to the medication. Okay? What's wrong with people? You see, God made this planet he put this together. This was his choice for you. And he, he made this, and of course, people don't realize that he took something that looked, hey, get this, that looked like those planets. I mean, we have planets that have that liquid in, you know, I think is it your Uranus and, and different ones like that have just have all that liquid on them and they have a hard core. He was able to make that. It was without form and void. And he was able to make that into what we have here in this beautiful planet. And even better when you think of it from a creation standpoint before the fall. And I think about how quickly man, his desire is to go somewhere else. It tells you how perverted man is and twisted. God has created all of this for us. And, you know, as we look at this... God did not cause it to rain. Um, he forms man out of the dust of the ground. By the way, just short of nothing is something called dust. And so nothing spectacular what man is made of, but he, he pulls it together and organizes it. And, of course, you know, dust here would always reference in the Bible. If you go throughout the Bible, uh, it's something of little worth, but God made it of great worth. You see, that's what God chooses to do. Take things that are of little worth and make them great worth. And that's what's going on here. He breathes into the, the his nostrils there. Man becomes a living being. Uh, and, of course, man in this way is a living soul. There are other references in the Bible that says man has a soul. Pick it either way you want it. He has a soul or he is a soul, okay? But as we think about this, God, of course, makes him a living soul. In verses 8 through 9, we see here, And Lord God planted a garden eastward to Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God, of course, plants trees, and these trees, have a they're important to, to note here because of their, their significance. And uh, this is where he places man. And, of course, as we come down to this, we look and we'll see here a per- different perspective on creation. But it does not contradict chapter 1. It just gives more detail in what we cover. In fact, Jesus will combine both of these. You can write these down and go look at it later in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 5. He'll combine really both in, in both of those chapters in that way. And, of course, we see the tree of life. What's the tree of life for? Well, the tree of life is to sustain uh, there, they would have eternal life, and in that way, the tree of life, in Genesis um, uh, three twenty-two. Of course, there, it, there was a. What was the concern? What was the concern about the tree of life? Yes. So, of course, they're driven from the garden, but is the tree of life still around? Revelation chapter two and verse seven. It's still available to his people. Of course. We know that uh, that's in heaven. And, of course, uh, Revelation 22, two two is another reference to that. The, the, then there was this awful tree that God should have never put there. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree had to have the sour fruit. No, it's a tree, and it bears fruit. And it was a what? Help me. Choice. Thank you. You see, if God gets to make choices, guess what man gets to do? He gets to make choices. You said, wait a minute now, that don't seem very fair. Wait a minute, this is is rigged against us. You set us up for failure. No, 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 no. That's that's a true sovereign who looks at the subject and says, by the way, I made you, I put you in this perfect environment, gave you a perfect body, you can slam dunk anytime you like. You can lift a million pounds if you like. I don't know, he's probably a superhero. Can you imagine wrestling, Adam? But Adam has all these great things. I mean, Eve could eat at McDonald's every day and never gain a pound. You see, they, they could they had all of these advantages, but they missed one thing. They were missing a choice. They needed a choice, and God even put it for them there isn't that wonderful that every day that I walk around the garden of Eden I realize that I God has provided me this and he's provided me that and he provides and you know what guess what I do to stay here I choose see the Calvinist struggles with choice (laughs) they do Uh, worst sermon ever or not worst sermon is the greatest sermon ever in the the um, one night at church I grew up in, they said, um, the deacons came to the guy, the evangelist said, look, you know, we're Calvinists here, we don't want you to, re-. and uh, so he, they kind of challenged him. Some of you would know the name if I told you the name. Well, he got up that night and preached, it's a choice. <laughs> and uh, he didn't come back. Um, so, you know, but, but, you know, the Calvinist loses the sense of if you, as a true sovereign, if I lock the doors from the outside, am I truly sovereign? I'm only as sovereign as what? Those doors stay locked. But a true sovereign gives his subject a choice. You see, God's ideal for your life and for my life is a choice. What, what choice will I make? Every day you get up is a blessing. You know why? Because get, God gives you a choice to live the way you want to live today. Now, he doesn't approve of every way we want to live. But he gives you a what? A choice. Every day you get up, you get a choice. You get to say, you know what? This choice is mine to make, and I'm going to make it. That's a blessing. Yeah, I I know sometimes we say, I wish I didn't have this besetting sin in my life. I wish there wasn't this temptation in my life. I wish there wasn't these objects around things. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with taking care of getting clear in the way, right? But at the end of the day, we live in a sinful world. And if our choice was to remove all of those choices, what are we? You see, this choice is powerful. God has a choice for you, and it's only good. What's your choice for God? That, that to me, is the integrity of your service. It's only as good as it is what? Tested. If it's not tested, then what good is it? You know, at work, I have people who say, well, we need to be careful there. We might break it. I say, if you're afraid to break it, let's not use it. Put it on the shelf. I can't stand people who put away things, tools, wherever it is, and they won't use them. Because why? We might break them. No. Let's get to work. Let's use it. Let's get busy with it. Because I want to test what? It's integrity. I want to push it. Because there may be a day when i got to count on it, right? Hey, I want its integrity to hold up. The integrity is it's been tested. It's been tried. By the way, there was a man in the Bible that was tested and tried, wasn't he? And he made a what? A choice. And he had a lot working against him. And he wanted probably all of those things me, But what he didn't realize was that his choice was ultimately what was being tested. And by the way, the devil thought that his choice would be wrong. You can make the right choice. And here, God made the right choice. Don't you think that this tree is wrong? Don't you think this tree was unfair? Don't you think that this tree shouldn't have been there? Because if you do, you're going to say, God, you put me in an unfair situation. I shouldn't have had a choice to do whatever it was that I did that was wrong. You you put that in my life. You allowed me the freedom to make that choice. And we kind of blame God sometimes. And God says, wait a minute. I'm not the author of temptation. I'm drawn, You're drawn away of your own what? Your own lust. Your choice every time. You can't help but hammer that when you get to this point. And so we'll move on from that. But in verses 10 through 14, it says, And a river went out to eat and to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name was the first is Pison, which it compasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. By the way, if you can find it, you can get some gold. And the gold of that land is good. See, it's good gold. There's Bdellum and an onyx stone, and the name of the second river is Gihon, and the same as it that compasses the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hedekul, which that which is going toward east of Sy- uh, Syria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And uh, these are great because we know exactly... Where those are, right? So anyway, no, we, we just know that the Bible is very, it tells you the facts, tells you exactly what was there. But it says, And the Lord God took the man <coughs> and put in him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, uh, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And so here we, we have the description of the rivers. And uh, it's a real place. He's placed into the garden to keep it, to tend it. Um, by the way, work was not part of the curse. It was a blessing to do. And it was a part of the original intent for man. That was God's choice for man. He was to work. And, of course, as we look at this, um, you know, he tells him, he says there, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you you shall not eat. He emphasizes that. And he tells him, of course, uh, you know, you can't, you know if you if you eat of it, you're gonna die. He tells him exactly what would happen for the consequences of disobedience and um as we look at this in verse eighteen um he he also notices that man all right, I'm gonna read this to you in verse eighteen, ready It is not good that man should be alone. okay, I got one, okay, I got two <laughs> you know it is it is it is wonderful. That God said, I will make an help meet for him. What was her purpose? Her purpose was to help and to be comparable, right? To what his needs were. And so as we come to this, God's blueprint for Adam. This was a choice that God made for Adam and for, for the woman here. Of course, the helper and what she would be suitable to do in helping him. God, of course, gives to man the responsibility to be what? The leader in the home. He gives to the woman the responsibility and accountability to help him. And, of course, um, a true leader does not mean that man was not designed to help his wife. I want to be clear with that. A true leader will help those who are helping him for sure, and and it does go both ways in that way. Um, And, of course, here as as we think about helping, uh, the Lord Jesus had to, to correct the thought, right, that helping was weakness. It's not. It is not inferior. It's one of the strongest things that you can do. And so this woman, of course, she was not only a helper, though, she was to be comparable to the man. She was to be a meat, well, she was supposed to be meat uh, in, in that sense, and that idea of being comparable. Verses 19 through 20, we see here that uh, it, it talks about there that Adam, of course, got to see all of the animals. And, you know, you might think this was strange, that God would bring, have you ever thought about that, that God had Adam go through all the animals? And what was the conclusion of Adam. Do I? That was weird, wasn't it? I mean, we we all kind of, as Christians, we all kind of go, well, we don't really want to talk about that. He's looking at all the animals, and there's what? Nothing boring, right? That's not really what this passage is saying, okay? (laughs) This passage is reflecting on what? What is there, when he's looking at the animals, what is present? What when he's looking at him, what do you think he's seeing? Okay, we have a boy dog and a girl dog, right? <laughs> we have a boy, you know, we have a bull and we have the cow, right? He's seeing these things. What do you think he's missing as he's looking at that? He's missing me, boy. Where's my girl, right? Where's my woe man? I want my woe man, right? So he is looking at this, and he realizes that it says, but for Adam there was not found, and help me for him. He was not searching the animals, okay? Please get that straight if, you're, if, you're, if that's mixed up in your head. He realizes that he's missing something, and so God gave him, uh, of course, the anesthetic there. And, you know, it was obvious if the animals came in pairs, he gets to have one. And, of course, he takes in verses 21 through 22 that uh, he took one of his ribs and God did surgery on him and made the woman. And uh, she was to be, you know, really that knit to him in that way. And, of course, God, what an intimate thing for him to use the rib uh, to do that. And, of course, God brought Eve to Adam and created Eve out of Adam, he was first, he was the source, he was the head, he was to be he was she was created for him in that sense and to be his the perfect helper in that way. This subordinate relationship starts now. What people think of the subordinate relationship in this sense starts now. She is there to help him. We see that. And of course, he understands you know, of course in verse 23, he understands what the the understanding of who Eve is and how she is related to him, and uh, of course we know that um, even Paul writes about this in Ephesians about husbands loving their own wives as their own their own bodies. That, that's that's a real real statement there, uh, true to this. You know, of course she's taken out of man, and um, you know when you think about this, um, they she is made out of something different. And uh, we know the the Bible speaks to that in 1 Peter 3, 7. We need to be careful of the weaker vessel in that way. And, uh, of course, in verses 24 through 25, it also gives us here, uh, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So they're both one flesh. And, of course, this passage, of course, forms our foundation for the understanding of marriage uh, Jesus and Paul both quote this in reference to marriage. And um, so as we look at this, I want you to understand something, that if God had an ideal and he had a choice, this is it. Uh, i read you a commentator statement here that says, Many want to believe that the monogamous two-parent family was invented in the 1950s by American television icons Ozzie and, Ozzie and Harriet. It's just a TV show for those of you who don't know what Ozzie and Harriet is. But Adam and Eve are the original family. This is God's ideal family. This isn't polygamy. This isn't concubinage. This isn't the keeping of a mistress. This isn't adultery. This isn't homosexual cohabitation. This isn't promiscuity. This isn't living together outside the marriage bond. This isn't serial marriage. This is God's ideal for the for the family. And even when we don't live up to it, it is still important to set it forth as God's ideal. That was God's choice. You see Adam and you see Eve. That's God's ideal. That's God's choice. If a plant was made during that time, that's God's ideal. If an animal was made during that time, that's God's ideal. mean, God made, he's got this marriage relationship, it is that they are to, to be one flesh. And that at the end of that, the idea here is that they were, it says they were both naked and the man and his wife were not, what? Ashamed. And the idea here is that they are open and that they have a sense of, they're completely exposed as, as a person before God and man. They have nothing to be guilty of, nothing to be ashamed of, and nothing to hide. And I promise you, as you think about being uncomfortable, nothing's more uncomfortable than somebody coming up and just locking eyes with you. How you feeling, Mandy? You going to hold up? I got to stare on. I'm staring right through you. I can see the back of your scalp. I can see the roots of your hair follicles. That's uncomfortable for Mandy. I picked on Mandy on purpose cuz I knew I could really draw the reaction I was looking for. Okay, I was going to just beat in on her. By the way, if somebody locks eyes with you like that, does it make you uncomfortable? It does, doesn't it? I have a I had a the my Boss that was retired and gone now. He, he used to do that. You'd walk up to him, he wouldn't say a word, he'd just stare at you. I started confessing things that I didn't do. <laughs> I mean, I was just telling everything, right? Why? Because you're kind of naked before someone in that sense. When you think about being just, you feel like somebody can see through you there, you know, we, and we spend a lot of time trying to fix ourselves up, right? Uh, so that people don't see the, uh, the natural us. But this is the idea. You know, you think about it, and one of the commentators said, when we want to be most attractive to someone else, we do the most to change our normal appearance. We We have the thought, if I really want to impress this person, I have to fix myself up. Adam and Eve did not have that feeling. All they had to do was be Adam and Eve. And you know what? When you make the choice to choose God's ideal, you don't have to worry about what God sees. You make the right choice. When you get up and you go throughout your day, you'll be full of choices. There'll be all kinds of choices present themselves. And I want to tell you something Adam and Eve stood naked before God, but guess who else does? We do. What's our choice? God sees us. He knows exactly who we are, what we are, what we're doing, what's our choice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for tonight. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your ideal and for your choice for us. What a blessing that is. You only want the very best for our life. And yet I think, how many times I have failed you, Lord? How many times have I chosen the wrong thing? Lord, it's so important that, Lord, you continue that spirit of conviction and working in the life of us as believers. And we thank you for the Spirit's conviction. And yes, Lord, we thank you for the choices. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the freedom to make those choices, whether it be salvation or living in holiness and sanctity for you. Lord, we thank you so much that there is a promise that one day we will be freed from this world of sin. There'll be a, we pray for your return. We look forward to the day when you will return this place to what your choice and ideal is for man. And Lord, we thank you so much that as believers, we don't have to live against your ideal. Lord, you've given us the power even now to choose what is right. Help us to embrace that. Help us to accept that and to move forward each day knowing that our life is a choice. We're not bound to anything else other than what we choose to do for you. We thank you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.